please turn also to the New Testament. The text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll begin reading from verse 1 through verse 10 of chapter 2. This also is God's holy word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May we go to our God together in prayer and ask for his blessings and the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you indeed are holy and righteous, that your word is truth, that your word reveals to us our true state. And Father, it is not uh, the natural man who comes to this understanding uh, according to his own searching, according to what he sees, but Father, you reveal to us our true state. And Father, oftentimes the truth is painful to see. But Father, help us to realize that the good news of the gospel uh, it's not all that good if the bad news is not delivered. Help us, Father, that we might accept this bad news so that Jesus would be that great of a Savior to us. Father, we pray in thanks that our Lord Jesus is the one who saves us from our own destruction. He saves us from our sins. And Father, we thank you for the grace that you show to us through your Son. We pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of conversion. Father, sustain and bless and guide and encourage your people. And we pray, Father, that your Son would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine taking care of a grandparent or a parent advanced in age, and you're there at the doctor's office, and you're the one who receives news first of that terminal diagnosis. And perhaps you might be thinking, well, I don't want grandma or grandpa or mom and dad to hear such bad news. And you wonder, would it be right? Would it be loving? Would it be charitable to conceal this truth from them, this terminal diagnosis? And I think about how the matter of is concealing truth ever loving? 
I think about this regarding not just a physical realm, but within the spiritual realm. Is it, is it right ever to hold back the truth about our true state? Well, I don't want to insult them. Well, this might affect their eternity. That they, they might have to hear this good. They must, have, they must hear this bad news if the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be understood. Because here we say that Jesus is a Savior. Well, Savior from what? <laughs> what is He saving us from? We're doing perfectly fine here. Oh, no, you're not. These three, three verses deliver us some very, very bad news. And unless we understand this bad news, we really have no need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. Here, the book of Ephesians presents our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And he speaks about his beloved bride, the church. In this chapter 1 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is giving, uh, he, he's, he's giving praise unto God for the salvation that he so freely gives to us. In verses 3 to 14, one sentence, he speaks about how great this salvation is. And he continues in chapter 1, in verses 15 to 23. And so that we would not walk away thinking that salvation is a grand plan of God, but it's only theoretical that when the rubber meets the road, when it it comes upon sinners that it has no effect, then here we have chapter 2. He's telling the Ephesians, hey, listen, this is where you were. And it does produce its desired effect. It's not just theory. This idea of salvation freely offered in Jesus Christ, that there is the practice of it. It is received. There is a transforming effect of the gospel by the power of Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit's work. So here we we see some really bad news in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Man, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, is enslaved to sin, Satan's captive and under God's wrath. Man apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ is enslaved to sin, Satan's captive, and under God's wrath. We'll look at this in three points. The first is man's deplorable death and doom. Second, man's depraved direction and disobedience. And third, man's demonic despot. So here, the way that the verses are set up is structured such that everything focuses on the second half of Verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's, that's kind of the, the center of the X of these three verses. Ultimately, it's saying that man's true condition and its depl- his deplorable state is, is concluded by, hey, he's on the same side as Satan. Satan is at work in their lives. He's following Satan's will. So the first point, man's deplorable death and doom, in verses 1 and the end of verse 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then in verse end of verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here we think about the context in which the Apostle Paul was speaking and writing. The context of redemption in verse chapter 1, verse 7. He, thinks, he speaks about redemption through his blood. And there we're left wondering, redemption from what? Well, what do we redeem from? And this idea of redemption is something is lost, and that something must be saved, something must be purchased out of loss. Then there's the matter of forgiveness in chapter 1, verse 7 also, the forgiveness of sins. But forgiven of what? 
Well, why, why do we, what have we done wrong? And here he speaks about trespasses and sins. In chapter 1, verse 18, he speaks about the hope of God's calling. It requires that we have a previous understanding of the hopelessness of our lives outside of Christ. This is where God meets people, is he meets people in the hopelessness outside of Christ. And he brings us this good news so that we might have the hope of his calling. So also, regarding poverty, in chapter 1, verse 18, he prays for the spirit of, of revelation, of knowledge and revelation, so that you might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But how will we even value that unless you and I come to understand our true poverty outside of Christ? That we have no merits of our own. We must confess we have no merits of our own. Everything that I do is tainted with sin. And it's only when you and I come to realize that that we come to realize that we are truly poor. Poor poor is not uh, lacking money in your account. Poverty... Poverty is spiritual poverty, true poverty. And in chapter 1, verse 19, to know God's power. And the contrast is to know your utter helplessness, to save yourself, to do anything of spiritual good. And and that's where in this chapter 2, here in verse 4, but God. So he has all this bad news in verses 1 through 3. And then verse 4, Lord willing, we'll look at that next week, is but God. There's a contrast. But God, he's the one who shows us his great love and mercy in Jesus Christ. We think also about man's deplorable death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. We think about the origins of death. We have to go back to Genesis, where it all began. Genesis chapter 2, that God set up a situation for man, that he was in the garden. And I want you to understand, this garden is not like your garden, no matter how good your garden is. Okay, my, my garden is, is not great at all, right? But it, it's not a bad garden, right? It, garden of Eden was, was perfect as God set it up. And it's only in our sin, only as, as we start to listen to the deceptions of Satan, who says, hey, this God who put you here, he sets you up to fail. And, and this, this one that he said you cannot eat of, this is the best one. And, and he's wicked that he would, would set you up in this situation and hold back from you what is good. And, and you think about any situation in your life now. Isn't Satan saying the exact same thing? Hey, how can God do that to you? He's he's holding back from you the precious, the valuable. He's robbed you. In Genesis 2, 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Was it wicked? Was it evil? Was it oppressive that God gave him this rule and put him in that garden? No, it wasn't. The garden was good as God gave it. And the warning, the warning ought to have been here to think about how many things, how many trees, how many plants that God said you can eat from. You will freely eat from them. We're not told how many there were. 
Think about how good some of these tropical fruits are, right? And uh, how good Adam would have had it in the garden, right? I think about today. It's, it's in the 40s, right? In February. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're excited. <laughs> we're excited about that. But, you know, hey, in the Garden of Eden, hey, there, there would have been a very narrow temperature band, right? This, this idea of these, North, these Minnesota winters. Sorry, I don't think that's what they had back then in the garden before the fall, that, that the, that the uh, you know, 50 below zero, that this is part, this is the effect of the fall, right? We think about Adam's sin, his disobedience in the garden. That is when sin entered the world. That is when death entered. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So it was Adam that brought sin into this world. And his, his decision of sin didn't stop with him. It affected every one of us. We talk about this idea of, of Adam's sin against us, that he was our representative. His, his choice to sin is held against us too. And not only, the, not only was it that one sin, but the nature, this corrupt nature that he had, comes to every one of us by ordinary generation. When you have a sinful man and a sinful woman and they conceive a child, the only product is another sinful human being. It was far more than physical death. People say, well, you will surely die. Well, he didn't die right away. Because they said, hey, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, it wasn't the exact day, but, but death, a physical death entered the world. But something far worse is spiritual death. It was spiritual death. And this is the loss of communion with God. You see that in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. That Adam, when he heard God, he hid. So why, why was he hiding? He said, I was naked, so I was ashamed. Right? Why was he hiding from God? He had fellowship before. Then his eyes were opened. And he realized that he was naked. He, he had this self-consciousness about him. There was shame involved. Fellowship with God was broken. Think about what spiritual death means. It means a rejection of God, an enmity towards God. We read earlier in in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But there is a rejection of God and an enmity towards him. We speak to our children. We remind them. If someone says they're an atheist, if they say there is no God, what do we call such people? According to Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And anyone says that they're an atheist, they're identifying, I'm a fool, but there I'm a fool. And how much more of a fool can one be to claim that God who exists, everything of creation testifies to his existence? That one would say, no, it doesn't exist. It's a matter of extreme hatred. Just like if, if there's some coworker or a neighbor who really doesn't like you, right? If you, if you walk into the room, they don't say hi. They look away. They pretend you don't exist, right? This is, this is how extreme hatred manifests itself, right? Denial of God, denial of your existence. Psalm 14.1 speaks about corruption. They are corrupt. Corruption describes man's nature. No longer good, but bent. Right? There's uh, 
there's this, it's like a scoliosis, right? The, the S shape of the spine, right? For, for young people growing up, that there's corruption, no longer straight anymore. Man's heart is corrupt. His nature is corrupt. There is no one who does good. Some of you might be wondering, no, no, this is where you're wrong, Frank. We see men do good all the time. Oh, they can do civil good, right? They can do external good. Think about the various buildings. You, you walk through the, the city of St. Paul, and there's buildings uh, named after people because they gave uh, significant amounts of money to, to build nice buildings. People can, if there's a famine, they can donate money, donate food. These are all good things, civil good, right? outward good. But you ask, are those things ever spiritual goods? According to God, they're not. Because he says there's none who do good. Here, there's spiritual death. speaks about our total inability. That man, in his unregenerate state, is unable to do or even to desire anything that's spiritually good. That there's nothing that God says, oh, well, that's actually good. Because when, when man fell in sin... Right? He lost his ability to do good. Adam in the garden, he had the ability to do good, do, good, do good and the ability to do evil. And then when he sinned, that the ability to do good was completely lost. And that's man's state right now outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ. In fact, even the gospel, the gospel cannot be heard and believed unless God gives new life to sinners. Psalm 14 continues in verse 3. Not even one. There's no one who does good, not even one. It's easy. It's easy for us as we start to look in the world and we look from the teachings and the values and the standards of the world that we think, okay, our, our curve has just shifted. So you have the super saints, right? So the Roman Catholic Church talks about the super saints. So, so they, they, they give given sainthood. And then you, you have the people like the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, right? Well, whoever you want to put on that list, the child molesters and all, 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 all the wicked people, they're, they're in that small group. But then we think about the vast majority of people and, and then we, we think of ourselves as, oh, we're, we're, it's as if we're neutral with God, right? So, so we have the really bad and then you have the super saints and then the bulk of the people are just, we're just neutral. We're, we're not for God or against God. He's not for us or against us, right? In fact, he, he generally is favorable towards us. But you see, that's man's assessment of himself. Here are the scriptures, Psalm 14. It says, there's no one who does good, not even one. It is, it's not even one who does good. The description of spiritual death applies to all of humanity. Everyone who descended from Adam and Eve. And, and here, perhaps... I'm starting to lose you here where, where you're saying, hey, Frank, you're, you are just so pessimistic. Why, why, why are we even spending our, our, this beautiful Sunday here listening to you go on about this? And, and what, I, what I can say is here, I challenge you, this is not my word. This is God's word about our condition. And you ask, why, why does God belabor this point? It's belabored because unless we are to understand how great of a Savior our Lord Jesus is, we must understand how bad our situation is. We, we didn't need just a, a little crutch, a little boost from Jesus, right? A little uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, a, a, a little caffeine boost to, to get us spiritually going. No. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do any spiritual good. The very salvation that Jesus offers us is something that we could not fabricate for ourselves. We didn't need just a little extra credit from Him. He is our hope of salvation. And outside of Him, there is no hope of salvation. We have also here man's deplorable doom in the end of chapter 3. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Men are by nature children of wrath. We ought to understand that when God looks out, so there's, there's no denying in the scriptures that talks about election, talks about predestination, and, and perhaps one has to explain how and why. So we, we can't deny those concepts because they're there in the Bible. And they're there in Ephesians chapter 1. And this idea of election then. So, so some people think, well, hey, if you choose Jesus, then he elects you. Well, this, this verse, that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, is for the very reason of emphasizing, you are no better than any of the other people who are not elect, who are outside of Christ, who are reprobate. So that we might understand, there's no boasting, there's no merits. We can't claim anything that we're better off than them. It should humble us. It should humble us right, right, down, to the, right down to the dirt. Right? So, talk about how at the cross of Jesus, the ground at the cross is all level. Right? There, there's, not, there's not any kind of slope where some people are higher, some people are lower. No, the ground is level at the cross. We're all deep in the dirt there. And there's no boasting that we have. No legitimate boasting. Here, when you think about the, the condition of man, <clears throat> you think about the sciences. Think about the physical sciences, biological sciences, right? Think about the, the chemistry and all that. Hey, those things seem to be fairly objective. And, and we understand that those laws, they're from God. Physical laws, chemical laws, those are all from God, right? We're, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. We're, we're discovering these matters. Hey, what about math? Didn't God give us math too? He did. And the farther you get from such objective things, so for example, you start thinking about man's study of man. When man starts to study himself, right, that's, that's when the objectivity really starts to skew, right? So, oh, uh, uh, what, what, is, what is the issue? Uh, well, why, why can't men get along with each other? Right? Well, then they start coming up with all kinds of strange theories, and this is when things start to get really weird. Right? And, and then the, the explanation, hey, how, how, did, how did evil come into the world? Well, well they, they start to talk, talk about, well, it's because it's in our environment. So a child is born in the environment, and then they see all of this, and, and they, since they see it, then they do it. What? You ever have... One child and then two, child, two children, right? I mean, if you're parents of all things, you can say, hey, I've, I've never, my child has never seen me strike my spouse. But uh, how did they do that? They were hungry. They were upset, right? I remember when my son was young and an infant, right? He would get hungry and he would start to strike me as, as a four-month-old, right? And I said, well, who taught him that? I didn't teach him that. Well, it's in their hearts, right? That's, that's the sin in their hearts. And... And here we come to understand a little bit about man's condition. We don't have to teach children 
right? It's the innocence of children is not found in the purity of their hearts. It's found in the weakness of their limbs. This is according to, to Church Father Augustine, right? Hey, it's, it's because they're not advanced in learning about the, about the uh, sophistication of evil. Their, their, their limbs are weak to carry out true damage, right? As they get older, things change. Here, think about man's deplorable doom. That they know God's judgment is upon them. Romans 1.32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. When you open up the, the news feed on your phone, isn't, isn't this Romans 1.32 what we see in all these news articles? I mean, isn't that... If you scroll through your news articles, that, that's what you're seeing. They're giving hearty approval to others who practice disobedience. And that men know that God's judgment is weighing over them. That's why there's a fear of death. There's a fear of death held in slavery to that fear of death. It's a reminder to us that man's condition is bad, very bad. Outside the gospel, man's condition is deplorable. So the second point we have man's depraved direction and disobedience in verses 2 and 3 in which you once walked following the course of this world. And in verse 3 among whom we all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So man's depraved direction is that he follows the course of this world. So what's so bad about the world? Why, why, do you, why do you put down the world? We like to be like the world. James 4.4 4 gives this warning. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow, some pretty serious warnings. Perhaps some people would like to think, you know what? I'm wise enough, I'm kind enough, I'm loving enough. I can follow Jesus and befriend the world. Well, wasn't there someone who already tried that? I mean, isn't this Jesus when, when he came? I mean, he, he's infinite wisdom. His, his love has no end and, and still they hated him and rejected him and, and are, you, are you claiming to be more loving and wiser than, than Jesus because obviously Jesus is saying that they hated him they did they crucified him this, the course of this world results in death and condemnation if you find yourself deferring to the standards to the values to the morals to the ideals of this world this ought to be a warning to you. If you chase after the world, if you have a longing to be like the world, to be accepted by the world. Here, think about how God defines love for us. The scriptures define what love is. But the world will come in. No, God, you don't know what love is. We know what love is. We, we define love, right? That is love, that is love, that is love, right? You you don't tell us what love is. Oh, that's pretty, pretty extreme, isn't it? So there's, 
in that love there's a rejection of God's law. And the last time I checked, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you're rejecting God's law, that's a definition of hate, not love. Then you have also the world steps in there and says, hey, we tell you what justice is. We can define justice. No, God defines justice. God is justice. Right? How, how, how are you going to give us a better definition of what justice is? You think about the, the church, what the church often does. The church doesn't do exactly what the world wants. The church follows maybe a year or ten years behind. Right? So, so they're already passe. Right? So it's like they're, they're wearing yesterday's fashion. And it's already not a good thing. And then you ask, well, what is the role of the church? The church is to be the light. And if the, if the church is like the world but a year or ten years behind, that's when they cease to be the light. Because they're practicing what resembles the world. This is not what our calling is. Our calling is to be the light, following Jesus Christ, living according to his truth, trusting in his goodness and mercy. The course, the course of this world results in death and condemnation. Popularity is not the standard by which to judge. And here, what you find is that the people who were sought after, the people who were the leaders of the past, would it be 10 years, 20 years ago, you find that, uh, that there has to be like some kind of redaction of their statements, their writings, their words, because they, they realize, hey, the leaders of our past, they didn't push the envelope far enough. And you see where the goalposts are starting to move and following the world. Boy, you, you have to do a lot to keep up. In contrast to that, our Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. His standard never changes. Here Jesus says about his people, John seventeen fourteen, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So in Christ, he sets apart his people. Don't be surprised that people don't like you. Don't, don't be surprised when people speak evil about you behind your back and they revile you. There should be no surprise. Jesus warned us about this many, many times. That he is the light and the world hates the light. And following the course of this world, this is, the, this is the course of man's depraved disobedience there in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. <clears throat> Here, what the world does is it follows its desires. It lives out its passions. It follows uh, where, where the body leads. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here are some of the common deceptions. Just follow your heart. You hear that? Just follow your heart. Obey your thirst. Oh, how about that one? Was that Sprite? Obey your thirst. Burger King was something like your way right away, right? <laughs> these, 
Or, or hey, what, what about my needs, right? Hey, see, what about my needs? I have these passions. I, they need to be fulfilled. And God, God commands us that we would live upright, self-controlled lives, right? Titus chapter 2, that uh, we would give up worldly passions, live upright, godly lives in Christ Jesus, awaiting Christ's return. Here, we think about the very principle of total depravity. It's not that man is as sinful as he can possibly be. Rather, that sin invades every part, every faculty of man. So you think about how sin affects man's mind, right? So man's mind is affected by sin. And the result of that is is man uses his God-given intellect, which is a gift, right? It's a gift. He uses his intellect to reason what shouldn't be done to, these are reasons why I do what I do. Man uses his reasoning to oppose God, to exalt himself. So when we think about the, the desires of the mind, that's, that's desires of pride, setting ourselves first, setting ourselves above others. Desires of, of the body, of the flesh, obeying the, the sins of our youth, so to say, as, uh, as, as King David wrote about. And, and here, perhaps, you're coming to me saying, hey, Frank, you, you are damaging my faith in humanity. Well, this is what I want you to realize. We cannot have faith in humanity. The, the story of the world, the story of man, is that we, hey, we've evolved from animals like 100 billion years ago. Was it, was it 100 million? Now it's become 100 billion years ago, and we keep on getting better, Right? We're going to hit perfection. We're going to, we're going to abolish death, right? And we look at the 20th century and how this was, among the civilized countries, this was like the bloodiest, the bloodiest century in all. And we ask, hey, how, how does the evidence, how does the evidence point that out? Well, of course, here, what we ought to understand is that we, have, we should have no faith in humanity. This is not a proper object of our faith. Our faith must be in Jesus Christ. We cannot look to humanity, the world, man, to save us. Jesus alone saves. This is what God is doing. He's, he's closing the doors. He's cutting off the avenues. And he's saying, this Jesus, my son, is the only way. It is the only hope that you have. He is the only hope for eternal life. He is the only hope for redemption, for forgiveness. So we ought not to be ruled by our own pride, by our own intellect. We ought not to be ruled by the the passions of our flesh. That self-control is a necessary discipline for the Christian life. That here, you think about the, the training up of our children. So when they become teenagers, right? If you want to think about this, hey, suddenly teaching teenagers, we, we need to teach them self-control. Well, uh, you're a little bit behind the power curve on that one, right? This concept of delayed gratification, that needed to be taught like, you know, way back when, when they were, well before they were toddlers, right? This, this idea of, hey, I, I need to eat something. Delayed gratification, no, we're going to have dinner in another hour. Don't, don't, don't eat that candy, right? Delayed gratification. And what is... What is Christian self-control, right? Other than understanding that delayed gratification is not going to be here on this earth, but it's going to be in eternity 
in heaven, right? That that's true gratification. That's true satisfaction. Waiting for our eternal rewards and the promised Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the second point, man's depraved direction and disobedience. The third point, man's, man's demonic despot in verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the worst guilt by association. This is where the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, listen, when we get down to it all, obeying your thirst, following your passions, ultimately, this is being ruled by Satan himself. This is the work of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in contrast to that is the work of God. So here we have in verse 2, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you compare that earlier in chapter 1, verse 19, when the apostle Paul was saying, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Same, same description about this work, this work that's going on. God is working in you. When before, before Christ, Satan was at work in you. And, and here again, you're, you're probably thinking, no, no, Frank, you've, you've got this wrong. There are people who are demon-possessed. And, and then there are normal people. And here, I'm, I'm presenting to you, there's the fork in the road, and there's, there's, only, there's only two tines to that fork. Either you are ruled by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by Jesus Christ, or you are ruled by Satan. There's only two options, right? And... and and no matter how much Satan wants to prove to you, hey, he, he doesn't exist, right? Hey, I, I'm out of the picture. I, you're not supposed to bow down and worship Satan, not me. You're, you're supposed to worship yourself. Do what you want to do, right? He shows that he doesn't exist, right, in our, in our lives. That's the work of Satan. You think about what Satan does. He's the master of slander. Why did God set man to... To set up man to fall in the garden? The answer is he didn't. Everything was arranged for success. Adam was set up to succeed. He chose sin on his own. Why did God withhold what was good from man in the garden? Let's not talk about however many hundreds or thousands of things he could have enjoyed and eaten from. It's that one tree. Why did God put you in a situation in which you had no choice but to sin? He never does. He never does that. He never puts us in a situation where we have no choice but to sin. Right? 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 says he always provides us a way out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't set us up for failure. Then, then you think about how he plays the games of slander against our God. Then he also plays the games of flattery with you. Right? He, do you like it when people, you know, kind of flatter you, build you up? Hey, hey, Satan comes and say my friend, you're not that bad, right? You're, you're not that bad. You're okay. I'm okay. We're, we're all okay, right? Hey, everything's going to work out in the end. Have you heard that statement? Hey, it's all going to be okay at the end. You share the gospel with people, tell them about the bad. Hey, it's all going to be okay in the end. It's just, just don't be such a stickler, right? Don't, don't be such, such a pessimistic person, right? It's all going to work out in the end. It's not that bad. You're not that bad. I'm not that bad. Ultimately, what Satan is saying, hey, you're not that bad. The gospel's not that good. It's not that necessary. Let's just go on living our lives for ourselves. Here we have the reminder 
that there's no such thing as neutrality towards our God. And being on the side of Satan, so unless you're living in submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, then you're following the rule of Satan. And this should be that final nail in the coffin, right, of, hey, living according to our desires, living according to our own pride, that this is a life that results in death and damnation. And again, you ask, why belabor this point? Why belabor this point about man's horrible condition and sin? The answer is, the good news of Jesus Christ is only good if you fully understand the bad news. Jesus is a great Savior. In order for us to understand that, we must understand that you and I are great sinners. He saves by a great deliverance, by so great a salvation. He freely offers to us eternal life. All of these sins, living according to the past, our our passions, our pleasures. He's saying, leave those behind. Follow Jesus Christ. Believe in his name. And that he freely offers you eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. There is no other hope that we have. No other offer is this good. It comes only from Jesus Christ our Lord. The sick, the world and the flesh and the devil will tell us otherwise. But Jesus alone is the one who fulfills this exceedingly great promise. That you can be forgiven, not by your works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf. And when he died on the cross, he died in the place of sinners. He died in your place. He died in my place. We can believe that. And we trust that he indeed is the one who calls us to new life. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.